The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, a holiday getaway to the Leaden universe, and we give the Bain books lovers in our lives what they really want. Plus DJ Butler's conversation with Michael Z. Williamson about That Was Now, This Is Then. And we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It is a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afsharirad. Today, we bring you DJ Butler's conversation with Michael Z. Williamson about Williamson's new novel, That Was Now, This Is Then, in which a group of modern-day soldiers are thrust back in time to save their countrymen who are lost in the Stone Age. Though the novel can be read as a standalone, it is a sequel to Williamson's A Long Time Until Now. Both books are meticulously researched and bring a survivalist's eye to what it would really take to survive in a time before Wi-Fi, electricity, even agriculture. But first, the news. Looking for the perfect gift this holiday season? Well, look no further. Give the Bane books lovers in your life what they really want, more Bane books with Bane books gift cards. You decide the amount, but remember, e-arcs are $15 a piece, monthly bundles, $18. Pretty sure they already have everything? Head on over to the Bain Cafe Press Store and check out our wide variety of Bain merchandise with travel mugs, t-shirts, tote bags, hats, and more. There is something for every Bain fan. And don't forget about the Bain Challenge coins. All of this information can be found at Bain.com and act now while supplies last. And that's it for the news. Now, DJ Butler's interview with Michael Z. Williamson about That Was Now, This Is Then. Hi, this is DJ Butler. I'm here with Michael Z. Williamson to talk about his novel, That Was Now, This Is Then. It is out now in hardcover uh, and all your favorite ebook formats, DRM free when you buy them at Bain.com, uh, of course. Uh, Michael Z. Williamson is retired military, having served 25 years in the U.S. Army and the U.S. Air Force. He was deployed for Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Desert Fox. Williamson is a state-ranked competitive shooter in combat rifle and combat pistol. He has consulted on military matters, weapons, and disaster preparedness for Discovery Channel and Outdoor Channel productions, and is editor-at-large for Survival Blog with 300,000 weekly readers. In addition to these activities, Williamson tests and reviews firearms and gear for manufacturers. Williamson's books set in his Freehold universe include Freehold, Better to Beg Forgiveness, and do unto others. His novel, The Hero, written in collaboration with New York Times bestselling author John Ringo, has reached modern classic status. Williamson was born in England, raised in Liverpool and Toronto, Canada, and now resides near Indianapolis with his wife and children. Hi, Mike. Hi. So, uh, hey, I um, let's talk about that was now, this is then. Sure. Um, uh, so this is a sequel, uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, don't want to give too many spoilers, but the first book's been out for a few years now. So right. Do uh, you want to tell us uh, what readers should know about or, or should remember about the first book as they're coming in to read book two here? Um, I can. I, try, I actually try to write everything so it's a standalone, so even if they haven't read the first one, they can fit right in. Because I in always fact, that's it. how I did it. I hadn't read the first uh-huh. book, and I had, I, I had no problem. I hate going into a bookstore and finding a book that looks cool and realizing it's number four of six. Uh, so, so, but uh, yeah, the first one, uh, Element is out on patrol. There's a sudden bang. They're somewhere else. They have to figure out where they are. Eventually they figure out that they're in the Paleolithic and all they have is the content of two trucks and what they're carrying. Um, in this one, after, after they've, they, they had many adventures and got sent home, as the summary would be, um, the uh, people from the future come back to grab them to recover another US unit. Uh, basically time travel has been discovered and people are starting to experiment with it. And every time someone experiments with it, something twitches here or there. And you know, it's, it's like uh, people uh, 
starting their own nuclear programs or you know otherwise it's just a, a mess and uh using established people who they have um various um measurements information on is easier than using new people and they also want to minimize the number of people involved yeah so they so they send uh, two of their people and several of the u.s unit back to recover this other unit uh and uh it, it starts there yeah and we have various uh displaced uh, this is true in book one where we had uh like i think there are romans on the cover yes one, aren't there yeah so we, we encountered romans uh and 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 we we read i haven't actually read book one but that's you know clearly in the backstory as characters talk well you should because it's really good <laughs> well i, I certainly <laughs> so i hear <laughs> yeah uh so uh as as well as other um people displaced from various periods throughout right. history uh, including some people from the future, right? This is how they originally yep. hook up with um, whom they call, uh, am I right to say Coggies? Is that the, how they pronounce this? That was how, that's what they were calling themselves. And that's uh, a, um, it was um, a joke and an epithet on their part. It was part. a slur. Yeah. Yeah. It was a yeah. slur. Yeah. Meaning we're the smart ones, it turns out. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, so, and we have some of that in this, in this too. So there's uh so the book's, uh, on the one hand, we've got a displaced Paleolithic hunter who's come to the future who we got to go right. take home. Mm -hmm. uh, and on the other hand, there is another element, a U.S. Uh, military, uh, about 10 people, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we got to go find. And, and, uh, uh, and then we encounter, uh, and then we encounter others too. Mm -hmm. um, now, I had to say this. Um, um, as you're in your author persona, so this mm -hmm. is, may, or, may or may not have any bearing on your kind of real interest, but in your author persona, you really like gadgets in this book. Like there is a lot of discussion of, uh, you know, how the things, the cool things the technology can do, the future technology, but mm -hmm. also, also uh, you know, cool things that Iron Age technology can do, right? There, there's a moment. Oh, like, yeah. Mm -hmm. So talking about that, what are what's your interest in gadgets? What are what are your or, or technology maybe is a better way to say it? What are what are so, some of your favorite device moments in the story? I'm I'm good with certain gadgets, but not with others. When uh when smartphones came out, I told people never hand me your phone because I will blue screen of death it in ten seconds. Um, I'm I'm actually reasonably good with one now, but I was never never. <laughs> and uh, then um, we actually don't have TV out here. We we have internet, but there's no TV out here. I, All right. Um, I, I have to pay attention to gadgets because I tend to live things pretty stripped down um, by by choice. I'm really good with the technology of weapons. Uh, it's uh, something I've studied at length, worked with at length. I can do reasonable amount of gunsmithing, self-taught. I'm a, a bladesmith and have been for a long time. Um, things like that. Uh, but yeah, the uh, the Iron Age technology came up in the first book because one guy is a reenactor and has some experience smithing and decided he was going to uh, get a uh, reduction furnace up so he could produce iron so they'd have more tools and eventually did. And uh, he does a demonstration in this. And you know, the, the advantage in the first book was that each of the characters had a, most of them had a contributable skill, mm -hmm. uh, you know, either for primitive skills or for developing stuff. And they managed as well as, 10 people were going to under the circumstances. Um, the group they're going back for this time doesn't. And manage and, much less well. Yeah, and, and both, you know, both, uh, the, one of the criticisms for people who weren't military typically of the first one was that, uh, well, no, no military's grunts have this broad spectrum of skill sets. Like, actually, they do. If you go through a unit, you will find an awful lot of people with an awful lot of skills. And that goes back as far as the Romans. The Romans had, um, blacksmiths tanners everything else in the army and made use of them and you know whenever you have you know you know people who have language skills um cultural knowledge you know lawrence of arabia was brought in because he was a phd in middle eastern studies and under and had some grasp of the locals and learned more when he went there so you know the first unit locked out in having a concatenation of skills and the second unit unfortunately didn't so they went native fast and in a hurry, and you know, life was grubby, nasty, and uh, and uh, unpleasant. 
Yeah. And so now the first unit actually is not reformed in its entirety, right? right. Some of them for various reasons are not available. Mm -hmm. uh, and we get some new members. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what do you want to tell us about kind of the skill set or the personalities we have in the in what is now the rescue team? Um, I, I grabbed uh, four or five of the ones who'd been more present in the first book. Uh, there, was, there was just it would have been too many characters otherwise. You know, there was no, it wasn't a case if I didn't like any particular character or was trying to make any kind of point. It's just the, these ones were not, were going to be kind of extraneous. And I wanted to focus on the ones that were there. So you've still got one of the, the skilled reenactor Smith type. And a uh, small part of me, he's the one who can't handle the future gadgets well. He's like, yeah, I, I got nothing. <laughs> so, but, uh, and that's, that's, you know, there's not a lot of me in him, but that was like, so, someone's got to have that. And this seems to be the guy who has that. Yeah. Uh, one guy who's um, very good at, uh, he was an expert hunter in the first book, but he's very good at supporting people. He's very religious. He's mm. very honorable. Um, even though I'm not religious at all, he, he, uh, when that character developed, I really liked the character. Um, then, uh, you know, a couple others have other primitive skills and they pick up two scientists who were mm. contractors who have been read into the previous issue because obviously this wasn't something that the uh, military wanted to get out. And uh, they, they'd been consultants and uh, they're along to dig into what they can of any available uh, material they can research and analyze. And they're also reasonably well-versed in uh, dealing with different cultures. Yeah. If they've done that professionally yeah and uh and 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 this you, you say what dig into what they can this is an interesting point here right because uh it's not just the data that they come across but it's a question of what data are they permitted to come across because the right bodies, uh or we learn to call them the bikos yes now, right yeah mm -hmm. uh, we, get a little, we see a little more of them the future mm -hmm. Um, and they're controlling the information right and we right. actually as, as the end of book two we don't really know why yeah. Uh, um, t tell us about that. Um, so, yeah, well, there's two paleobiologists of different flavors along, you know, to look into disease vectors, things like that, uh, genetic drift. And, uh, of course, that's obviously something, you know, you, you'd want to study and being able to slide them in was uh, useful. And it also gives them a chance to try and sneak around the the future culture and pull some data if they can. But yeah, just it's um, basically a um, the whole thing is a quarantine procedure. Yes, this time travel jump happened that it wasn't supposed to. We're sending you to fix this, and you don't find out about anything else. You yeah, know, compartmentalize. What, yeah. what you don't know, you can't talk about. You don't need to know how our culture came where it is, how far in the future this is. None of your business. Yeah, yeah. and and that's from the perspective of the Kagis, the future team. It is a quarantine operation, whereas the U.S. military would like to know more things. Sure. And scientists personally would would like to know more things. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a sticking point. The, the, yeah. the scientists are very unhappy. We're going to review your data and tell you what you can take home with you. Yeah, and yeah. in fact, when when there there are a couple of sequences, one sort of pre jump to the past and one after jump, where the the team is temporarily in the future, and there they're kept isolated technologically. There there are mm -hmm. sort of uh, uh, disembodied servant AIs. Mm -hmm. uh, that are very convenient, uh, but they also will shut down conversations uh, or you know or 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 stop uh, right. data when 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 a one of these uh, you know army characters gets too close to learning something. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, and so at the end we have you know there's a, there's an inter interaction where the scientist I forget what the question is but someone asks uh, Raven Doctor Raven something and she, she gives an innocuous answer and and writes down I will tell you more later. Yeah, uh, because because they're being uh, stifled. So this is interesting. So um, uh, we'll come back to this, but clearly there's a sequel here, right? I mean, the, uh, there is, and the sequel is going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. um, well, so more about this book. So so uh, this this team that go back to rescue runs into various problems. Some of them are heartbreaking, and I don't want to get into all of them. Yeah, either. yeah. As that as the characters developed, I, I threw in. I started with the plot of what was going to happen, and I was like, yeah. Oh, Man, there's some ugly ramifications. There's here. some potentially really, really huge issues, and I and I actually want to leave the biggest ones off as 
mm-hmm. not to avoid spoilers, uh, but it is the serious, big, big issues, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but some of the smaller things, you know, I mean, just talking about gadgets, right? The, the, mm-hmm. ga- the gadgets become a problem. Yeah. Uh, uh, so so uh, the, the teams, uh, the, 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 the 12, the 10 who didn't adapt very well, uh, unfortunately, leave a trail of stuff all yeah. over the Paleolithic. Yeah. Um, and so uh, what are the kinds of things our team has to do to go deal with that? Um, I mean, there's, uh, and, and of course, from a statistical point of view, probably none of this would matter after, you know, 10,000 years. But at the same time, it might. So the, uh, the Vicos are making every effort to recover everything that's out of sequence. So, you know, cartridge cases, backpacks, yep. rifles, phones, anything that got left behind, st- stowed or abandoned, like we got to do our best job of accounting for it to make sure it's not there. Yeah. And of course, this stuff, when, the, when people have it uh, and show up in the Paleolithic and they're desperate, this is one of their currencies is we have these, uh, you know. Oh, this knife. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This knife, right? Yeah. This, even the cartridge casing. Look at this strange kind of, you know, magical, yeah. sacred object. And, and so it's they're shiny. People like they, shiny stuff and you can put things in it. You know? So they're passing them out to people. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, a bunch of stuff gets taken and basically offered as a sacrifice in a sacred cave. Mm-hmm. And so then our team um, had to go recover stuff. The um, Lewis and Clark expedition, they actually had, uh, and so, several other military expeditions around that time, they were given in writing consent to trade things like buttons and insignia. Oh, interesting. You know, you know shinies to, you know, to the natives, you know, collectively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody loves shinies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which particular shiny people like depends, but. Yeah. Right. Uh, and then that just becomes a problem. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, and again, without going too much into sort of, sort of the even bigger ones, but, but one, of our, one of our characters has a kit, mm-hmm. right? Uh, yeah. uh, which, which uh, uh, I mean, what, what, are, what are some of the challenges with, with a modern woman having produced a kid with a Stone Age man here? What are, what are the downsides or the risks? Right, well, well, first of all, it's all crap. No one figured this was going to happen. Um, you know, there's no way to go back and preempt this what do we do <laughs> and uh yeah pretty much every group is going um we hadn't accounted for that yeah and then one of the scientists is going but you probably should have <laughs> it sort of seems a little obvious right yeah like as a risk so that well the first element was lost for about two years before mm. they were recovered and they, you know they had strong leadership they had their own small uh, community and um, like positions a stockade or something. Yeah, a stockade, and um, you know they were working on trade and everything else. You know, leading up to the idea that so we're going to have to settle down with the natives, but let's give ourselves status first. Yeah. And the second element had none of that. Immediately went native, and um, and they've been there for five years. Yeah. As far as they're concerned, they got they 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 eventually figure out their in, in the, the Stone Age, and what are they going to do? You know, yeah. they, they've got nothing. They don't see a road home. And they yeah. don't just go native in terms of adopting technologies. I mean, they integrate to the local culture. Right. And, you know, you'd have to in circumstances like that. You know. Yeah. And so, you know, we can't leave this kid uh, because suddenly you've got, you've got, you know, a modern homo, uh, homo sapiens with modern, you know, European DNA well, they're they're Homo sapiens, but yeah, so they're different. Um, it's a uh, um, what's the term? Um, yeah, it's a different set of uh, of genes. Yeah, you know, uh, and haplogroup. Right, so haplogroup. Yeah, different haplogroup. That's it. Mm-hmm. So uh, right. So uh, even and I, yeah, and I don't know how far you want to get into this, but even at the end, there's there's a solution for for this child and her mother, and it's mm-hmm. you know, uh, in fact, I would say this is maybe is a is a way you might characterize a lot of the book is there's it's kind of a heartbreaking solution right and, like, and of course when they find the you know the proto-germanic group some of the same thing yeah and uh as in the first group first uh book you know people from earlier times have less trouble adapting because there's less one of a te- technological gap for one right. and uh they're more attuned to dealing with resources in the local area only and not expecting outside support you know, yep. these days we expect outside support yep yeah. 
I mean, yeah. the U.S. military unit expects that there is going to be a truck, a helicopter, or a plane bringing supplies in on a regular basis. That's just that's organic to your thinking. Sure, you, you, or that the supply chain will have food on the Walmart shelves. Yeah. Right? I mean, we've all seen this right. in the last few years. You, you plan for delays and workarounds, but the assumption is that at some point there's supplies there. Uh, whereas as you go back in time to you know less um, industrial capability, yeah. the assumption is you're going to have to get your own. Yeah. With what's available locally. Yeah. So you have these 900 AD ish uh, or 700 AD yeah. Yeah, uh, Germanic uh, people who uh, adapt really well technologically. Mm -hmm. um, but that just means, again, you have this, you, you start intermarrying and we have this, these real kind of heartbreaking uh, mm -hmm. uh, decisions the team has to make. Yep. Uh, yeah. That's okay. So, um, uh, by the way, one of my favorite complications, and I will see if it goes somewhere in book three, is Munoz, who wants to sue. I thought that was, uh, that that seemed exactly right to me. Yeah. <laughs> when we get home, I'm suing the army. Like, I'm suing the army. Yeah. And I don't necessarily blame him. I mean, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And hey, you could set yourself up. If they settle for three million bucks, you're done, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So screwed my life up, and what do I get for it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um. Okay, so so I didn't I didn't measure by page count, but it's got to be something like twenty to twenty five percent of the book is actually spent in the future, right? Some yes. some mm -hmm. significant chunk. So it's tell us, uh, and and this is new, right? This is not in book one. Um, I mean, there's some in the future, but they're all they're pretty much restricted to that um, facility in the first one. And here we get to see them socialize. They they go to clubs. They date. They do yeah. all this stuff. Uh, yeah. A bit. Um, yeah. Tell tell us about the future. Um, I mean, so what they see of it, uh, it's, um, it's a remote research village is what they call it. It's uh, Central Asia, it's um, reachable by air from everywhere else. There's multiple nation states, corporate states, and uh, it's very high tech. It's got uh, pretty much everything they need. Um, the um, technology can adapt in short order. So you say, I'm having a party tonight. I want the place to look like the inside of um, a Turkish bazaar. Eh, the, the machinery can do it. Tonight, why don't we go with um, Victorian? You know, it, you know, it's, it's, it's great for yeah, entertaining, ca uh, being uh, relaxed, casual, whatever you want to, however you want to relax, the, the technology is capable of doing it. And uh, their socialization is, uh, it works around that. You know, we're going to host a party. What's the theme? Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it's uh, not um, necessarily representative of the society as a whole because it is a very um, science and tech heavy mm -hmm. uh, part of that subculture. And this is the focal point for a lot of their, their research yeah. uh, location. The, the impression we get, and, and, and you, I think it's, this is good to point out that we're just seeing uh, this very specific place uh, is it's like uh, these people who say, "Well, I've been to America. I went to New York." It's like, yeah, you've been. Yeah, to New York. You, you didn't really see America. You saw New York. Yeah. You <laughs> so. probably you probably saw Manhattan. <laughs> yeah, so. right. You didn't see the Bronx or uh, Long right. Island. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the impression you get is is uh, is, is great wealth, uh, uh, great capabilities, and also a, a real strong ability to recreate. You know, mm -hmm. like. Uh, um, I thought one of the, the interesting things, and we don't see explored very much, is um, actually not at all clear whether they have a nation state. Uh, they, no, it was mentioned they, have, they do. Oh, they yeah. do. So, yeah. they, but they have they have currencies, but they have collectives uh, that uh, talk to me about kind of the currency idea. They're sort of sort of a collective um, corporate nation state, like say Kuwait. Oh, okay. You know, oh, that's right. There is a yeah. short discussion. Yeah. Yeah. People become shareholders in the state in a way. Yeah. Yeah, and you can, you know, get a job somewhere else and change. I mean, you know, it's not an issue. But, um, yeah. But, and uh, so it's a little more fluid, the, the, and the, the boundaries are less well defined than we would have. Yeah. Yeah, because wilderness is wilderness. I mean, you know, you know who cares? You know, yeah. If somebody wants to lock down the wilderness, well, then we have a discussion over, you know, are they going to pay for it? What are they going to do? You know, right. It's hinted at, but not discussed in detail. Interesting. Uh, yeah. So you know, some some of these uh, states export technology. Some uh, export resources. Some are uh, manufacturing, uh, but they all have aspects of everything, just like we we do with modern nations. 
uh, there, there's corporate entities involved with a, a greater degree. Yeah. So, uh, and, and are we, uh, are we going to see more of their society in book three? Do you think, is that part of um, the, yeah, there will be some, yes. So. Yeah. Uh, one of, one of the things, uh, that I, I was actually sort of asking myself, huh, early in the book and, and then, uh, and there it was, uh, is there's been some kind of a bottleneck. So the, so the pot, and we don't know how widely it affects people. Uh, we don't know if it's like an earthwide, right? Uh, uh, but but uh, uh, but it looks like the as far as we can tell, it looks like humanity has gone through some of a some kind of a, a narrowing, a bottleneck, a found. And that was that was reference to the end of book one, and explored a little more here. Yeah. And uh, is it, I, I guess I don't want to ask too much for spoilers, but what it feels like is that is that part in part that's the thing that the that the Coggies don't want to talk about. They don't want... And and that's what they're afraid of happening with you know uh, time travel is someone going oh I've got a great idea uh, without thinking about ramifications, side effects. Yeah, you know, we'll uh, prevent this disaster, but then mm-hmm. yeah, uh, and I. I um, there, there's um, a little bit of similarity to what um, Asimov did with After the End of Eternity uh, in, in all this. It's like, stop messing with things you don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> you can fix this. No, you can't. Just stop. <laughs> put it back. Just put yeah. it down. <laughs> um fantastic uh well well what else uh what would what would you like readers to know what would you like to say to readers that we haven't uh haven't already talked about um in no particular order yeah so there is a third one i've uh, been i've got a plot down i've been braining out uh, some details uh it, it should be a lot of fun um do you have a title that was now uh, this is then is a great title I am it, was, it was a hard title the first one had the best title and this one was hard to come up with yeah yeah, the first one, the title wrote itself from what I was doing. Um, and, uh, well, I, a lot of the characters uh, in the, the, the recurring characters are, uh, you know, vindicated in how they were reacting the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, the, uh, uh, the, the one that um, I, I was actually shocked when someone gave me um, a lead was actually... Um, um james cochran who unfortunately uh passed away this year from mm-hmm. from covid he linked me to um a thread on a forum where the book had come up in discussion and uh in the first book the the feminist is terrified that she's going to be used as trade goods mm-hmm. and i had a couple oh yo that never happens and this thread it's like uh so there's eight men two women and you know there's comments like well the first thing i do is fire seven bullets so i don't have to share the women it's like, wow, that's your survival strategy? Oh, my God. <laughs> and then it was, well, I'm going to trade the two women off for something useful. It's like, holy crap, you're literally vindicating the feminist. <laughs> right. You're going to trade off two of your technically, technically skilled people for something useful. Yeah, for a spear or something. Yeah, you're going to kill three quarters of your team so you don't have to share the women and you got to sleep sometime. Yep. But there were several com- commenters this oh no yeah here's why i do that like yeah this is this is um this is why normal people don't adventure and um why you're all gonna die if there's a disaster (laughs) well this is why you've got to have a level-headed captain right right they did yes yeah yeah Yeah, and the the, and the the second unit does not have quite so level-headed a captain and yeah their their social encounters are a whole lot different make some mistakes Yeah. yeah So. Um, so we'll see some of the same characters back in book three. It sounds like yes, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, we'll we'll get more into uh, maybe somewhat the mysteries of the future. Um, a little bit. I mean, you know, it's a it's a writer's trick. You don't um, put it down on paper if you don't have to, because that way you can't be. Yes, it's not canon. Box. It's not <laughs> canon until it's in a book. Well, no, that implies, Mike, that there might be like a fourth and a fifth book. I mean, are, are, do you? Think um, I don't, don't have plans for them currently, but I mean, if the check's big enough, sure, I can. Uh, <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> I can turn it into Game of Thrones. <laughs> but uh, nine, uh, three should wrap it up. I like doing trilogies. Um, yeah, it, it's it's a good arc, but I'm not opposed to doing more. 
and I may come up with an idea and go, oh, 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 I got to do that. So yeah, there's some tentative stuff I'd thought of for a fourth one, but it works well into three, so it'll it'll go in there and become part of it. Yeah. Are there are there uh, other potential displaced groups? I mean, if you if you're just gonna like pick, I guess how do you pick them? How do you pick like seventh century Germanics? Um, uh, I'd wanted to put them in the first one. It didn't have room. Yeah. So I, I put them in this, but uh, yeah. um, there is um, there's a complicated algorithm as to where, when, and how the 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 ripples, the side effects take place. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and there's a so there's I, a space and time connection. We we get yeah. a bit of that in the book. So I I I've got that down, and no one's quite none of the characters have quite figured it out yet. But yeah, there, there is one there, <clears throat> and. Um, then uh you know the third one is well what would you do if you had a time machine <laughs> so, and there's all kinds of options so yeah so is there is are there groups you would particularly want to uh explore let's say let's say that the, the algorithm was not an issue because that may mm -hmm. shape your choices but and if, if you, you do it deliberately you, there's i mean if you do it deliberately the algorithm doesn't matter yeah sure yeah yeah those are all side effects so, so who would you like to see if, you, if you're just going to choose, who do you want to go exploring with in the Paleolithic or whatever? Um, honestly, it's it's been done several times because it works. The Romans were a really good choice yeah. because they can, you know, they, they, uh, a Roman military unit has the organic ability to produce its own weapons, not fast, but, you know, certainly they have the industry for it, yeah. um, you know, to support itself, to campaign, to set up facilities. <clears throat> Yeah, and generally, you know, progress either in movement or in uh, in garrison, um, and they're not tremendously dependent on technology that they can't fabricate. Right. Yeah. Once you get after about the year thousand to twelve hundred, you start becoming dependent on the infrastructure of cities. Yeah. A lot of the a lot of the, the tech base. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I well I, I need to go back and read book one now, uh, and I look forward to seeing if book three, if we encounter you know Mongols or uh, or, or Mongols would be fun. I'll give that some thought. <laughs> yeah. Well, they seem to also have that kind of like ability to uh, live on the land, be independent, carry their own food production, and whatever. I'd have to I'd have to research them more because I, I I know some about them, but not as much as I do about other groups. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very cool. Um, all right. Anything else we should touch on, Mike? Um, I think that's it. I just uh, apparently um, I, I did a related uh, semi-related article. Apparently, uh, Bain bought it because I just got a check for it. So, <laughs> so hopefully that'll be out here on the website shortly. Oh, fantastic! Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Sequel to that's in the works. I've got. A couple other things on contract and a couple on spec around all the other stuff I'm doing right now. Uh, you know, part of the delay is chasing a two-year-old. Uh, I understand. It was a lot easier when I was, you know, 34 than 54. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. So, uh, so no, no release dates on anything though. Right now, it sounds like is that right? Um, I've, um, I've got a short story in the Weird World Four anthology which is coming out in summer i think uh i'm in that one too uh okay. i think that's right uh late yeah. spring or summer sometime yeah, yeah. which was a, a tremendous amount of fun to write um it was uh um you know no, no need to be realistic whatsoever yeah, how, yes how, how uh, ridiculous and off the wall can we be uh yeah my my story involved uh a group of mini tanks taking a short throat cut through a video game to get to the egyptian land of the dead and attack osiris that was basically oh i need to read that that sounds like yeah. Fun. Yeah. so off the wall no need to be yeah you know. ours was uh, what happens when the uh bureaucrats completely take over the military and everything is paperwork fantastic <laughs> fantastic well good well i look forward to uh reading my author copy of that when that comes in yeah all right fantastic well, uh, thanks very much, Mike. Once again, sure. uh, the book is That Was Now, This Is Then, uh, out from Bain Books and Hardcover and ebook. Uh, Mike, hey, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Sure. Thanks for listening to me. <clears throat>
6. Well, if it ain't old collaborator Tyler himself, Mr. Hazelbauer said. Say that with a smile, partner, Tyler said. Can I come in? If you promise not to take all my maple syrup, Hazelbauer said, opening the door. Tyler divested himself of his outer gear in the foyer that was standard for a house of any size in New Hampshire and shook himself as soon as he got into the living room. Dang, it's cold out. You rebs got thin blood, Mr. Hazelbauer said. Mabel, I think Mr. Collaborator needs some coffee. Coming right up, Mrs. Hazelbauer said, bustling in and shaking Tyler's hand. Don't mind him. He's just riled over revenues as usual. Revenues coming up from Manchester's bad enough, Mr. Hazelbauer said, leading the way to the cellar steps. Up in space is a bit much for my old brain. He led Tyler down into the basement and opened up his gun safe. Got this off a free trader for a jug I had stashed by, he said, tossing Tyler a rifle. Works, too. Don't worry, isn't no electronics down here. Laser? Tyler asked. It had the sinuous look of Glatun manufacturer. Yep, Mr. Hazelbauer said. Took out a white pine just fine. Made sure it was when the Horvath were in... What's the term? Retrograde? Something like that. Figure it's old, but it's what we could get. Actually, got a good few off him. Her. It. Revenuers come up here after our syrup. They're going to get a bit of a surprise. Isn't going to take out that Horvath ship. No, Tyler said, tossing it back. And it's not going to save the cities. Between you and me, Mr. Hazelbauer said, I would rather keep them standing. Don't care for Washington and Boston and New York. Don't mean I want to see them as craters. No comment, Tyler said. I sure as hell hope you have a plan, youngster, Mr. Hazelbauer said. I have a plan, Tyler said. What I'm hoping is that I don't have to use it. So, what do we got? Tyler asked as he walked into what was laughably called Mission Control. The room was a clutter of wires. Most of the equipment was handmade and mostly by the group of scientists and lab techs that clustered around the room's biggest plasma screen. Asteroid 33342-1998WT, Dr. Brian Foster said. The head of the Aten Mining Project, he had degrees in optics, astronomy, and geology. He also was available when Tyler went looking for somebody who had a clue what they were doing. His name actually came off of the nearly defunct Trade Hard mailing list. He'd once sent Tyler a rather scathing email explaining all the mistakes Tyler was making in orbital mechanics. Shaped something like a hairy Buddha, he was in his fifties and just getting started. A.K.A. Icarus 195, A.K.A. a whole bunch of other names that various astronomers have tried to get to stick. We're just calling it Icarus, even though it's not. Nickel iron, Tyler said. And this is the best candidate? Well, Brian said, shrugging, it's the best candidate that's in the right orbit right now. It's got the bonus that it's one of those really potential nasties someday, what is called a potentially hazardous asteroid. Turning it into a bunch of cars would do the world a favor. What about... Tyler searched his brain. This wasn't the asteroid he thought they were looking for. What's the name? Starts with an A. Egyptian god. That's most of these, Dr. Foster said. You mean Apophis? Yeah, Tyler said. I thought that was the big problem, Asteroid. It is, Dr. Foster said. Potentially. It's not going to hit Earth soon, but the way things are going, it's going to hit sooner or later. And when it does, it's going to be a major hit. So we'll have to take it out sooner or later. 
We thought about Apophis, but when you set this up, we put all the mirrors in Venus orbit, because you said, put them in Venus orbit. We'll figure out what to do with them later. Yeah, so, Tyler said. Apophis is too close to Earth orbit, Dr. Foster said. We'll get around to it. But we threw all this stuff down nearly a quarter AU to the sun. So for right now, we're too far away to melt Apophis. Being too far away from Earth orbit is not normally the sort of thing we're used to having as a problem with space probes. When we got around to thinking about it, we realized we kind of screwed up. My bad, Tyler said. Like you said, we'll kill it sooner or later. So we're going to melt, what is it, I Icarus? And can we get usable stuff out of it? Yep, or rather, probably just one problem. Which is? Tyler asked, sighing. It all seemed so simple when he was thinking about it, like for decades. We don't know what the hell it is, Dr. Nathan Bell said. The acknowledged asteroid expert was damn near as big as Mr. Hazelbauer. He also had a bit of a southern drawl when he got excited. Its physical characteristics are just odd. We don't know quite what it's composed of. Well, we will in a minute, Dr. Foster said. Just as soon as we put power on target. We'll know the external chemical characteristics, yes, Dr. Bell said. But the internal? Until we really heat this puppy up, we won't have a clue. And it's going to take either a lot of time or a lot of mirrors to do that, Dr. Foster said. The good news about Icarus is that it's only 300 meters across and rotates about every 3.7 hours. And that is good because, Tyler asked, we can keep heat on it longer, Dr. Nathan Housley said. The metallurgist was a necessity. There were no experts at orbital mining per se. Tall and spare, he had a bit of the look of a vulture. Although the asteroid is currently well within the orbit of Venus, the degree of thermal coefficient necessary for a successful melting of the entire, assuming any significant quantity of nickel iron in its composition, is 1.6 times 10 to the 16th joules. Given that the current output of the very large array is only 8.6 times 10 to the 6th joules per second, even factoring for the projected rate of increase, subtracting anticipated heat dissipation, it will require some six months to observe noticeable heating, much less melting, of the material. To achieve even that degree of efficiency will require solid and continuous transfer, which requires a low rotational period to prevent convection transfer. And a bit of a tendency to go on. Which means? Tyler asked. If it rotates fast, it cools off fast, Dr. Bell said. Also, we'll increase material spalling, probably, and create a cloud of material around the object that will reduce the quality of the beam. And we've got take in five, four, Dr. Foster said. The screen suddenly flashed up a picture of what was clearly an asteroid rotating slowly in space. Oh, beautiful image, Dr. Foster said. Where's our beam? Impact in two, one, one of the technicians said. Beam on. I don't see any difference. Tyler said. As far as he could see, it was still an asteroid rotating in space. I was expecting an asteroid shattering kaboom. We don't actually want an asteroid shattering kaboom, Dr. Bell said in a distracted tone. That would cause spalling. See previous explanation. I am an impatient person, Tyler said. Get used to waiting, Dr. Foster said. Do we have spectro yet? Be about three minutes, Dr. Bell said. Fortunately, with this hypernode thingy, we don't have light speed lag or it would be about seven minutes. 
I hate waiting, Tyler said. What is spectro? Spectroscopic analysis, Dr. Housley said. Tyler held up a hand. What is spectro in this context, Dr. Foster? The beam is putting some heat on the target, Foster said, grinning. That is going to burn some material, which is going to tell us what the outer composition is. Thank you. Which, as expected, is using a very unscientific term for our visitor, dust, Dr. Bell said. Undifferentiated gathered materials, primarily silica, some aluminum and titanium, lots of hydrogen, water, and oxygen, as expected. So it's a sandball, Tyler said, grimacing. A sort of wet sandball. Guys, not to be unscientific or anything, but this is costing me out the butt. I'd really like something other than a ball of sand. That is the outer shell, Dr. Foster said, and as noted, as expected. Okay, since you threw us into this and told us to take it and run, we never had the basic briefing, Asteroids 101. I hate lectures nearly as much, Tyler said, but I guess this is important. Don't please go into the hole there's no such thing as asteroids. That's an asteroid. For the purpose of this company and its nomenclature, an asteroid is something that is mostly rock or at least stuff like rock, such as metal and carbon. A comet is something that is mostly ice, meaning solid water, ammonia, etc. All the planetules and planetismals and all the rest seem to be people having to publish or perish and not having a good idea. Wow, I'll come up with a stupid name for stuff that's already got names. And Pluto is a planet, damn it. Asteroid, rocky thing. Comet, icy thing. Nine planets. How damned hard does it have to be? Been trying to do research on our own, have we? Dr. Foster said with a grin. I hate trying to play catch-up, too, Tyler admitted. And most asteroids are, sorry, Dr. Bell, rock. That is, low metallic content, silica, etc. Some are highly carbonaceous. Got a bunch of carbon. Can't we just call those carbon asteroids? You're the boss, Dr. Foster said. But most asteroids aren't one thing or another. I thought conglomerates were rare. By the I-need-to-publish definition of conglomerates, Dr. Foster said. But what happened was, you know how they were originally formed. Leftover planet junk, Tyler said, especially the asteroid belt. Good enough for a C, Dr. Foster said. Most of what you define as asteroids probably started in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. Some of them are, and I grimace as I say it this way, comets where all the junk boiled off and left behind rock. The asteroid belt is probably a planet that either didn't quite form or sort of formed and then got pulled apart by tidal forces from Jupiter. But with all those rocks drifting around, they were bound to collide. When they collided, they broke up. Then there were smaller rocks, which drifted back together and in some cases fused over time. In other cases, true conglomerates, they haven't quite fused together, so they are obviously conglomerate. In addition to rocks, using your nomenclature, there was a lot of stuff, dust, if you will, thrown off, which also drifted onto whatever had microgravity. So you have dust-covered rocks of varying size which then ground together, producing more dust and fusing together into the asteroids we're looking at. The whole process continuously going on along with them hitting various planets, which are for scientific definitions just really big asteroids, and sometimes hitting hard enough to throw dust out of the planetary gravity field to add to the mess for 15 billion years, give or take a billion. Of which we are now the official cleaner-uppers, Tyler said. And absolutely damned by the scientific community. Dr. Bell said, peering at a computer screen. What my fellow minor planetary object experts have to say about my current job is unprintable. I've had death threats. They're just sorry they're not getting paid as much as you, Tyler said. 
Okay, when I was doing my very fast and dirty research, I noticed that there weren't very many good pictures of these things. What's up with the high-gain color semi-real-time video? We're using the VLA, Dr. Bell said. I thought the purpose of my VLA was to melt asteroids, Tyler said. Thus, hopefully, eventually making enough money to keep this lash-up going, or at least defray the costs. Not that I don't love pure science for pure science's sake. By the way, Dr. Bell, if you'll come up with a list of particularly vocal critics, I'll be glad to gag them with some money. Basic research into these things is actually a wise investment. I'll send you an email, Dr. Bell said. But we have to look at what we're doing. We currently have 42 VLA mirrors and two collectors up. We're using seven of the primary mirrors and one collector for take. The VLA mirrors are angled to reflect the view of the object to the collector. The collector is pointed at a camera. We had to buy the camera, by the way. It was originally purposed for a satellite, Dr. Foster said. The company went bust when one of their others was zapped by our Horvath friends. It was cheap, comparatively. Over or under a mill, Tyler said. Never mind, I get it. Any chance of using it for general astronomical research? As I understand it, the VLA is a great telescope, potentially. I thought you wanted to heat up asteroids, Dr. Foster said. It would make a great telescope. Even with the relatively low quality of the VLA mirrors, the final take would be awesome. Right now, we've got 3,300 square meters of space mirror. That's the equivalent of about 900 Hubbles. Cut that by maybe 10% for the quality, and you're still talking about the most powerful telescope ever created. One of the bitches we're getting is that we're using all this scope power for, sorry, industrial purposes. Which, in time, is going to pay for one hell of a scope, Tyler said. We getting anything but dust? This is going to take time, Dr. Bell said patiently. I'm still unsure about the entire exercise, Dr. Housley said. We can heat the material, but we can't form it. And how exactly are we going to get it to Earth-based industry? One thing at a time, Tyler said. First, we have to develop the basic techniques, not to mention find an asteroid that's not just a ball of sand. Still no real clue what it is, Dr. Bell said. It's more than sand, though getting some definite carbon readings. Unless it's hydrocarbon, it doesn't do me much good, Tyler said. As to Dr. Housley's question, assume a more or less consistent nickel-iron asteroid. Good luck, Dr. Foster said, but I'll accept your assumption for the purposes of discussion. Thank you so much, Dr. Foster, Tyler said, grinning. The Transvaal formations are from a nickel-iron asteroid, as are the Sudbury complexes. I'm an expert in nickel mining, sir, Dr. Housley said irritably. I'm aware of that. You are also a metallurgist and know that neither composition is pure nickel iron, but have you thought about the actual method of their formation? A ball of nickel iron and other stuff. Conglomerate, Dr. Foster said, came screaming in through the atmosphere. It was heated. The more volatile material was mostly burned off on re-entry. What was left was the high melting temperature materials, nickel, iron, platinum group, etc. Accept it, Dr. Housley said. What we are doing is a replica of that, Tyler said. Sort of. The asteroid is spinning. As it heats, the lowest volatility material will... What, what was that term, Dr. Foster? Sublimate, mostly. Basically, it will burn off. And spall, as Dr. Bell put it. Chunks will be blown out by the low-volatile material beneath. The removal of the low-volatiles, the higher portions of the periodic table in general, will permit contraction of the high, melting, generally denser materials. With the rotation, what should be formed in time is a compact ball of metal. As it heats more, the lowest melting point materials will creep to the outside. I see, Dr. Housley said. 
Centripetal thermal smelting. Exactly, Tyler said. By the time it's heated up enough to be worth pulling stuff off, I should have some Glatun space bots here to do the pulling. Then, a bit like pulling taffy, we'll start pulling off the valuable materials. The main thing I'm actually worried about is losing the copper and tin with the silica. Speaking of which, Dr. Bell said, just got a hit of selenium. There is tin in it, was, well, it's still probably orbiting, but as finely divided powder and gases. Ditto aluminum now. I think I know what this thing is made of. What? Dr. Foster asked, craning over his shoulder. Bloody damned everything, Dr. Bell said. We're starting to run the periodic table here. It really is a conglomerate. It's mostly low volatiles so far, obviously, as Dr. Mr. Tyler just pointed out, the melting points of silica and copper, which just turned up, aren't that different. Yeah, Tyler said with a sigh. I was afraid of losing all the low volatiles. Fear not, Dr. Bell said. Based on what we're getting so far in the overall recorded mass, it's a conglomerate that's about 75% mixed low densities by weight. That's not too great, Tyler said. It's going to make a great paper, Dr. Bell said excitedly. Minor planet composition determination by solar pumped spectroscopy. Has a nice ring, don't you think? I'm not doing this to keep your professional reputation intact, Tyler said. Does this thing have any significant amount of usable metals? Not really, Dr. Bell said. I mean, it's got metal, but not a lot. I think we need a better asteroid. Hell. Well, on that note, I'm going to be late for a meeting. Mr. Vernon, it's a pleasure to meet you at last. And I you, Mr. President, Tyler said, taking the indicated seat. Sitting in the Oval Office was a long way from cutting logs. I understand you are not a fan, though, the President said, giving Tyler a charming grin. You're the President of the United States, Tyler said. I am what could be considered the loyal opposition. I dislike your policies, but that doesn't mean I don't recognize that you are the President with all that entails, including automatic loyalty to the position within the constraints of being a citizen. I believe the term that my staff came up with was communist, terrorist-loving danger to the Republic with delusions of grandeur. Well, I'll admit I didn't vote for you, Tyler said. But the choices were pretty sparse on the ground, period. I take it this is not a test of my loyalty to you as a person as opposed to as our chief executive, because if so, we might as well withdraw to corners and start the count. Not at all, the president said. But you have to admit you do seem to keep putting your foot into messes. I prefer to think of it as giving my government bargaining chips, Tyler said. We now have regular-ish trade with the Glatun. We have something resembling a balance of trade, one that is so far very favorable to the world and this nation in particular. The Horvath are now demanding all of our, mostly your, maple syrup, the president said. And now you've discovered something that has their appetite even more whetted. Whereas it may all be fun and games for you, Mr. Vernon, I am president of this entire nation. If the Horvaths start destroying our cities, it will not be Tyler Vernon that will have to comfort the grieving. And Tyler Vernon didn't run for office, Tyler said, smiling thinly. In case nobody covered this in history class, when you work to get into the chair you're occupying, that comes with a lot of responsibility. That's why you get perks like a car and driver and your own airplane, not to mention a nice crash pad. Can we cut the verbal fencing? The president asked. 
Gladly. You're really upsetting the Horvath, the president said. Are we reasonably secure? Tyler asked. We are, as far as can be determined, very secure, the president said. One of the things we've been doing with the credits we've gotten is getting something resembling security back in our systems. Which I'm sure doesn't upset the Horvath at all, Tyler said. And I'm planning on upsetting them even more. Why, in God's name, the president said. Damn it, Vernon, this is not a game. There are people's lives at stake, millions of people's lives at stake. Yes, there are, Tyler said. And I'm fully cognizant of that. I'm going to do my level best, am doing my level best, to keep them alive. But there is more to life than simple existence, Mr. President. Sorry, but this country was not founded on existing under tyranny, quite the opposite. That is a very nice sentiment, the president said. But in the Revolutionary War, the nation did not face extermination. Did it not? Tyler asked. Those who would surrender essential liberties for a little temporary security shall receive neither security nor liberty. That gets thrown around a lot in terms of whether we incarcerate terrorists, tap communications, what we're allowed to do with our sexual organs. Essential liberties before the Horvath used to mean or seemed to mean whether we had the right to get drunk on a flight and insult stewardesses, whether marriage was between any two people, whatever their gender. But what Ben Franklin meant by security was whether your home was going to be burned to the ground, whether you were going to be killed without rhyme or reason, whether property and businesses would be seized. This is what essential liberties really mean, Mr. President, and what temporary security really means. And we have given up essential liberties for temporary security. And how very secure do you feel, Mr. President, sitting at ground zero of Horvath target number one? How secure? Then, do you have a plan to get the Horvath from the sky? The President asked angrily. Because the Joint Chiefs are the people who are the hottest on my neck to get you under control. They don't want to lock you up. They want to bury you. I've got about as much of a plan as the Continental Congress had in 1775, Tyler said. And that is? Win or go down fighting. That's suicide, the president said. You're nuts. Our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. They want the maple syrup? Let them send their own troops down. And then things will get really hot. They won't send their troops, the president said, touching a folder. Oh, Tyler said as if gut-punched. You have to be kidding. That is low, not to mention unconstitutional. I'll give you a quote, the president said. The Constitution is a document, not a suicide pact. We've been in close negotiations. Send in our troops and get the maple syrup, or they start with D.C. and work their way down a list. So are your troops planning on extracting and processing, mind you, the maple syrup? If necessary, the president said. The Pentagon can come up with the most amazing plans on the spur of the moment. We are hoping for widespread support as a patriotic gesture. You need to look up the definition of patriotism, Tyler said. Although you'd probably have to use a dictionary from before the PC era. So am I under arrest to be delivered to our benefactors or am I free to go? I'm hoping for your support in this necessary action, the president said. Will you settle for neutrality? Tyler said. While I personally am grieved by this gesture by our government, any armed resistance would be both counterproductive and mean that fine Americans would simply be killing other fine Americans. It's really a very sad day. Glib. Thank you, I used to write. I'm quite serious about sending in troops. I'm sure you are. And I'm quite serious that it will be a sad day. 
That was John Ringo's Live Free or Die. And that is it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer, Ruth Judkowitz. Thanks to DJ Butler and praise, thanks, and gratitude to Michael Z. Williamson. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David Afshirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.